everyone. Julian Charles here again of themindrenewed.com and welcome to podcast number 50, which is an interview I conducted a few days ago with Mike Kenner, who is an open government campaigner and Cold War researcher. And he specializes in the history of the sometimes, well, it has to be said, quite dubious and unpleasant activities of Porton Down, the UK Ministry of Defence's Biological and Chemical Weapons Research Centre in Wiltshire. Now, just in passing, let me say that as this is podcast number 50, I guess the most topical thing to have done would have been to have had a podcast marking the 50th anniversary of the assassination of John F. Kennedy, or as Barry Zwicker called it last time, the execution of John F. Kennedy. But then again, that subject has been addressed over and over and over and over again in the last week or so in the media, both in the mainstream and the alternative, from various points of view that I'm not quite sure that it's a great loss that we're not adding to that at this particular juncture, although I'm quite sure that it is a subject that we shall look at in the future. And of course, we did at least touch on it last time with Barry's Wicker. But having said that, this podcast is nevertheless marking a 50th anniversary, not one in the US, but in the UK, because it is 50 years ago this month that Porton Down, in its wisdom, conducted the very first public area biological warfare field trials here in the UK using live bacteria, which is not exactly a pleasant thought. However, before we get going on this, let me make it quite clear, and I think it's very important to do this because this sort of thing can be misunderstood. These open-air trials, however questionable many of them were in terms of safety and morality, they were nevertheless not designed to target people. What they were trying to do was to test warfare methods using bacteria and chemicals that simulated much more dangerous biological organisms. But having said that, they were frequently carried out in places where people lived or near to where people lived. So there are genuine questions here that do need to be answered. And as Mike Kenner explains, these trials went on for many years and in many places and even involved to really quite a significant extent the south coast of England, where I was growing up as a child. So there is a good chance, actually, that I would have got a nice lungful of live bacteria from these trials from time to time, which is not an especially comforting thought, since I was, at the time, as a child, prone to chest infections and allergic chest reactions. Now, obviously, I can't prove that there's any connection. Um, There may well not have been, but I do note that chest problems were specifically listed later on as one of the possible consequences of these bacterial trials. So just the very possibility of that doesn't exactly endear me to the UK defence establishment. And I'm going to present the interview in two parts. Mike and I were talking for about three hours on this subject. And I have to say that I think that is the longest interview to date. Yes, it is. And of course, I was tempted to try to edit this conversation down to make it fit a more conventional podcast length, say about an hour or so. But in the end, I couldn't. I just could not bring myself to cut out so much of the fascinating material that Mike shares with us. So as I say, I've split this into two parts. The first part, this week, concentrates on Porton Down's use of bacteria to simulate biological warfare agents. And next week, the second part will turn to the questions surrounding their use of chemical simulants. So that's it. Without further ado, the first part of the interview with Mike Kenner. Hello, everybody. Julian Charles here of themindrenewed.com, podcasting to you, as per usual, from the depths of the Lancashire countryside here in the UK. Today is the 21st of November 2013, and it's great to be talking to Mike Kenner, 
who joins us all the way from Barmy Weymouth in Dorset here in the UK, which is just about 20 miles or so from my childhood town, Swanage. And Mike Kenner is an open government campaigner and Cold War researcher who has for many years now been investigating into the history of the activities of Porton Down, the UK Ministry of Defence's Biological and Chemical Weapons Research Centre in Wiltshire. And his work has been featured in numerous UK national and regional TV documentaries and news features. And he has made a number of contributions to a couple of books on the subject as well. So, Mike, thank you ever so much for joining us. It's great to be speaking to somebody from my old uh, neck of the woods down there. It's a beautiful area, isn't it? Yeah, thank you very much for having me. It's a pleasure. Thank you. Now, I wanted to get the opportunity to speak to you because a few years ago, I saw you interviewed on ITV's programme, Top Secrets Revealed. And there you were discussing a number of the, uh, well, let's let's call it rather questionable biological and chemical testing activities of Porton Down scientists. And I was particularly struck by the so-called Lyme Bay trials, because in them, live bacteria were sprayed out at sea in the direction of the mainland where I was living in the coastal town of Swanage. So obviously, I didn't like the idea that I might possibly have been affected by that. So I wanted to speak to you about this. And we'll, that, that's the least of it. We'll, we'll get into all this as we go on. But before we get on to the specific specifics of Porton Downs activities. Could you give us a brief word or two about how you got into what you're doing and when all this started for you? Yeah, absolutely. Um, back in 1971, uh, it's almost like a previous life to me now, I was an apprentice working for the post office telephones as it was, BT as it is now. And I was working on a um, piece of equipment called the MDF, the main distribution frame. Now, what happened is every now and then uh, you get requests come in. You had to rearrange the circuits on the MDF. And one of the requests came through, and I, I looked up what it said on it, and it said the microbiological research establishment brought them down. Mm-hmm. And I realized that we had them working in the area. Went and made a few inquiries to, uh, to my boss and said, did you know we had the germ warfare boys down here? He nearly exploded told me to, where to go. And the next day when I went in, this actual record had been rubbed out. All the records at the time were in pencil. And uh, he'd rubbed it out, but you could still see it was there. So I kept quiet about it because, obviously, I signed the OSA. When you join the, anything like that, a government organization, as it was, you signed the Official Secrets Act. So I kept quiet. And then in 1995, there was a number of cases of childhood cancer appearing on the fleet, about four and a half miles west of Weymouth, Now, this is very close to the area where the telephone record was dealing with. So I started investigating. So I told one of the children's parents about this, and um, he was interviewed by the army, who said, well, we did do a few things in the area, but we're not quite sure what they were, and we couldn't get any further. And then in 1997, Andrew Gilligan and Rob Evans wrote an article in the Sunday Telegraph, which sort of blew the thing wide open. They managed to get the Ministry of Defence to admit that they had been spraying live bacteria over populated areas. It only said in there, I think, that it was a, on, a, on a small number of occasions, about, say, over a period of two years, about uh, 25, 25 separate field trials. But that was enough. I thought, well, hang on a minute. This is what they must have been doing when I, back in 1971. So I started investigating. Now, at the time, there was a piece of legislation John Major brought in called the Code of Practice on Access to Government Information, a precursor to the Freedom of Information Act. So I started using that. And it coincided at the time with a new Labour administration who had come in on a wave of open government. That was their whole idea at the time, uh, something which I think they regretted later on. Hmm. And Porton Down were virtually forced 
to come clean about what they've been doing. But they did it in a very, very slow matter. And um, over the years, I mean, I've been doing this since 1997, and it still surprises me every now and then a new trial pops up. So your research centres specifically in the activities of Porton Down, that uh, research centre in Wiltshire, and the tests that are initiated from that establishment? Yes. I mean, for those that don't know, um, Porton Down is a generic term for... There's a couple of establishments there originally. First of all, it was the... um, Most people would know it's a chemical defence experimental establishment. That was sort of like their 50s term for it. It was set up in 1916. It was going to be at Bovington, funnily enough, between uh, Swanage and Weymouth. But for some reason, it went to Porton Down, a little place outside Salisbury, the main city of Salisbury. They got 7,000 acres of land there where they practiced uh, gas warfare. Then during the Second World War, there was worry that the Germans might develop biological warfare. There's quite a concern about that. So the British were at the forefront of this, um, and they formed something called the Biology Department, Port and Down. And they're the people that eventually did the trials on the mysterious Scottish island, Grunard, which stayed contaminated with anthrax until about 1986 because of what they'd done during World War II. Now, the Americans took great interest in this, and, and it gave Britain a lot of scientific kudos. Uh, the Americans loved the idea that the British could come up with the ideas and the Americans would then either further develop them or they could, they had the wherewithal to mass produce the weapons. So in 1947, they signed a tripartite agreement. So that was the UK, Canada and the US. And we all decided to combine our research and hold a meeting once a year into what they called toxicological warfare. And that covered chemical, biological and radiological warfare. Then just after the war, they realized, look, we ought to carry on with the biological warfare thing because it is, it's very cheap. <laughs> it was a lot cheaper than trying to develop an atomic weapon. So they formed an establishment called the Microbiological Research Department at Porton Down. Um, so that meant that it wasn't quite an equal to the chemical side, but it was getting there. In the early 50s, they were supplied with a huge amount of money and they built the largest brick-built structure in Europe. And that became the MRD laboratories. And they expanded at a tremendous rate. Uh, in the mid-50s, they were given establishment status. So they were now on a ranking with the chemical warfare boys. And this carried right the way on until their closure as a separate organization in 1979. Um, all that happened then is that the majority of the scientists at work there stopped doing overt biological warfare research and moved over into public health research. And indeed, the Public Health Laboratory Service took over their building. And some of the biological warfare scientists moved across and formed a small department again within the chemical warfare branch. Over the years, it's expanded again. And chemical and biological warfare have an equal place at Porton Down. Well, I'd like to turn to the questions surrounding the trials themselves. And I just thought that a, a way to begin a conversation about this would be to look at the sarin tests that were carried out on servicemen during the 1950s and possibly for years after that. Uh, now, I know this isn't central to your research, but could you give us an idea of what happened just very briefly with those sarin tests and perhaps say something about that extremely disturbing case of Ronald Madison? Yeah, I mean, I think that the sarin cases is especially Ronald Madison's case, is a perfect example of Porton's scientific arrogance that had developed over the years. 
if they thought something was safe, they didn't actually go about trying to prove whether it was safe or not. They just assumed that it was safe. And this culture carried on into the, the public area trials as well. Mm. Uh, with the case of Ronald Madison, this is a purely an extension of what they've been doing all along. During the Second World War, they've been testing phosgene and mustard gas on, on servicemen, particularly in Australia when they wanted to test the effects of mustard gas in a jungle environment or a tropical environment. And there, there were some horrendous injuries sustained by Australian troops there. Porton were totally involved in those trials. So this carries on. When a new substance was uh, discovered, the nerve agents were discovered that had been uh, produced by Germany after the Second World War. They were brought over here to see, A, whether we could reproduce them, and B, how effective they were. And there, there were quite a few of them. There was Sarin, Soman, and Tabun. Sarin seemed to be the one that they preferred, and they did extensive tests on it. And the very strange thing with the Madison case is that they'd nearly killed one of the service volunteers. I mean, it's wrong to call them volunteers. Porton never actually calls them volunteers. That seems to be a bit of spin that's, that's come up. They were called, Porton always referred to them very strangely as observers. Oh. But indeed. they weren't. Victims would be far better word. Do you know what these men were actually told? Well, this is it, you see. Um, the Common Cold Research Institute was also based at Salisbury, which is close to Porton down. And there was some confusion. Now, whether the soldiers were actually lied to and were told you're going to the common cold research establishment is not actually clear at the minute. No one's been able to physically get hold of a, a part two order or whatever that said this. But there are so many people that say it that I, I can't believe it's not true. Now, imagine what it might be. It's this sheer ignorance on the part of the army is that they decided, look, we need a lot of volunteers here. Not enough are coming forward. What can we do about it? And I'm pretty sure someone just said, oh, we'll, we'll get people for your common cold research. You know, they just didn't realize, no, it's not common cold. And of course, these chaps go along. And once they're there, they're coerced by the idea that they're going to be getting a little bit of extra money and they're doing it for the good of the nation and they're protecting their loved ones, blah, 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 all the normal. Plus, of course, they don't really have a lot of say in it. Once you're in uniform, you belong to the Queen. Yeah. And you're conditioned to think that way as well. You are, yes. I mean, that's the whole purpose of being mm. in the army. You don't question the order. They say that there was informed consent, but I, I don't really believe that. Anyway, a week before, they nearly killed a man. They knew this, and then they went back the following week. Poor old Ronnie Madison. He died after uh, he had sarin dripped through battle dress that was strapped to his arm onto his skin. They were trying to see how effective battle dress was, I presume. And is it right that he died within, within an hour of this? Uh, yeah, certainly. He died in agony. He didn't die immediately. A lot of people would like to say, oh, nerve agent kills you very, very quickly. Well, it didn't, Ronnie. He died in a horrible way. The other thing is that is, is what they did afterwards that really annoys me. They held his inquest in secret. His father was allowed to attend the inquest, but was then told that he mustn't tell anyone and had to sign the Official Secrets Act. They were so worried about security or someone getting hold of a tissue sample of Ronnie's body that they put him in a steel coffin. It was an incredible thing. And hats off to the, his family and, and all the campaigners that, that carried on asking questions throughout the years. And finally, in the new millennium, a new inquest was ordered and he was found to have been unlawfully killed. And it wasn't just, as you say, there were, there were many people who had these kinds of experiments upon them. And, and have they not complained about all sorts of disorders which they attribute to this? Well, yeah, I mean, there was a tremendous campaign at, at the time of the Ronnie Madison second inquest. Uh, the police were called in, Operation Antler, Wiltshire Police investigated to see whether any crimes had been committed. And I think that they felt that there were, but they couldn't, either the, the people that had conducted these experiments had died or there was not enough evidence to prove intent. 
But you can tell the, the sort of mindset with Port and Down because it came out during the inquest that they were told not to use a gas chamber after Ronnie Madison died. They were said, right, you're not to use these gas chambers anymore. So they took it literally and said, OK, we won't use gas chambers sort of like number one and number two. Oh, we've got some portable ones, though. And they started putting servicemen into the portable gas chambers. Now, that really worries me as to why would Portendown have a mobile gas chamber? <laughs> yes. um, you know, so close to after the Second World War, you think, hello. And then it carried on. It wasn't just that. They tested CS gas. They tested sarin. Some of the most disturbing experiments were the interrogation experiments they conducted, which still haven't come out. The information still isn't out, where they used LSD on it, unsuspecting people. We had Operation Money Bags and Loose Change in which units of Marines, in some cases, were subjected to LSD. They weren't told what it was, obviously. They thought it was water. And then they had to go off and conduct an exercise, anti-tank exercise, artillery exercise, that sort of thing. Some people, as is normal with LSD, had a, quite a nice experience, and some people had a terrifying experience. And this isn't uh, in the distant past, is it? Because in one of the documentaries that I saw, there was a guy, I think he was called Ian Fuchs, who was saying that even as late as 1983, he was tested on. Yeah, I mean, this carried on. Um, I'm not quite up to speed on when the Ethics Committee came in, and I don't think it came in until the 90s. But people will ask the same with these experiments as with the Lyme Bay trials and the chemical trials, the zinc cadmium sulfide trials. Every trial, they're going to say, well, who gave authority for these trials? And Porton themselves admit in the majority of cases, authority came no higher than the director of the establishment. In other words, they gave themselves authority to do these trials. Now, when you've got a system going like that, it's totally open to abuse. Mm. And I'm afraid they obviously abused it in many, many cases. So they could basically say what they like and there'll be nobody to check out whether what they say is true or not? Well, apparently they've got an ethics committee now. But it's still an internal ethics committee. I mean, an ethics committee should be an independent outside force with teeth. You know, there was such a thing that they had that was called the Offensive Evaluation Committee, who oversaw some of these experiments. The Biological Research Advisory Board, they oversaw most of the Lyme Bay trials, things like that, that were done in public areas. But they had no teeth. They had no power of veto. So all they could do is just oversee it and suggest you know, well, maybe you should do that a little bit different there because that might not be safe. But they couldn't stop Porton if Porton decided they wanted to do it. And I think that that's still probably the case nowadays. Mm. Um, could we start talking about the open air testing programs, which really are at the centre of your research? I wonder if you could tell us a bit about Porton's activities at the village of Westwood, because it's my understanding that they had a converted underground museum there but that there were significant concerns about the safety of what was going on. So could you tell us about what happened there? Yeah, that's a fascinating one. Um, it coincided with the anti-communist hysteria that was going on at the time in America. Americans had a real desire to discover whether anyone could commit biological warfare sabotage by disseminating bacteria through an air conditioning system into an office building, i.e. the Pentagon. And they did numerous trials where they released biological warfare simulants. Mm. I'm just going to let you know what a biological warfare simulant is because it's very important for what we talk about later on. A simulant is a supposedly harmless substance which mimics the physical properties of a real biological agent but doesn't cause disease. It's of the same size as a normal biological agent, fly through the sky exactly the same way. It would be inhaled by somebody in exactly the same way as a biological warfare agent, and there are many of them. Now, what happened is that the British thought, well, hang on, we can't have the Americans getting a leap ahead on us. So what we're going to do is that we'd like to investigate our government buildings as well. 
So they started asking around Whitehall, have you got a building that we could use to inject bacteria into while the people are at work? And all the mandarins in Whitehall turned around as one person and said, no, you're not doing it. So then there was some discussion about whether they could use the underground Second World War citadels in Whitehall. But it was decided against because probably the bacteria would come up from the bunker and into the main building. So in the end, they settled on a secret World War II repository. It was used by the British Museum to store all the uh, works of art during the Second World War. And it was in a underground quarry in the uh, small village of Westwood. And that's in, I think it's in Wiltshire, Westwood. Now, next to it was an underground Second World War factory, British Enfield Motorcycles, I think it was. And there were 200 workers in this adjoining underground factory. They both shared an entrance corridor that was quite long, about four or 500 yards long. So Porton went down and they, they modified the air conditioning that was in the British Museum repository, which was obviously empty by now after the war. And over the next year or so, they started injecting into the air conditioning system various quantities of a biological warfare simulant called Serratia marcescens. And is this a simulant for anthrax? No, this one was a vegetative bacteria. Some people think it's for anthrax, but it's not. The simulant for anthrax is BG, Bacillus globigii. We'll get onto that one later. But SM, the curious thing about it is that it was known at the time as an opportunistic pathogen. In other words, if you had an underlying disease, there was every chance that this would pick up on that and cause you an infection. So they started spraying this stuff. The only problem was is that they were spraying this stuff at the same time that the British Enfield workers were taking their lunch. And as the trials document shows, the Westwood trials, and it says in it that the only way that this bacteria could vent itself from the underground chamber was to go out through the entrance hall. Well, of course, that was at the time had 200 people walking up and down it going to and from their lunch. Now, this carried on for over a year. They did many, many experiments down there, testing different types of sampling device, trying to get different results by different injection points in the air conditioning. Now, what is very strange is that they did the normal thing. Whenever Porton did a sabotage trial, it was always done by their safety officer for some unknown reason. And he writes a very curious thing in his notes. He calls this bacteria a so-called non-pathogen. In other words, he had serious doubts that this stuff was harmless. But he still went ahead and sprayed it, knowing that 200 people were breathing this in. They did operate a negative air pressure system so that their air pressure was always lower than the outside air pressure. Therefore, none of the bacteria should manage to get outside the British Museum repository. Mm -hmm. Unfortunately, sampling devices planted outside found that that wasn't working. So the, the local inhabitants, that's hundreds of people there, presumably, were yeah. potentially affected by this. Yeah, yeah, hundreds of people. Porton have never come back on that. They start whistling and putting their fingers in their ears when you talk about Westwood and whether anyone was ever contaminated. Mm. The problem you have is that no one knew that the trials were going on. You know, if they presented themselves, the workers, to a doctor, the doctor wouldn't have known. Yeah, absolutely. He would have just put it down to, oh, it's something in the environment. Yeah. You know, the, the classic one, there's something going around at the moment. <laughs> That's right. Yes, it's Porton Down. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, well, I'd like to ask you more about the overtly open-air trials, which I guess splits into the biological ones and the chemical yeah. trials. So let's start with the biological trials. Yeah. First of all, we have the Gillingham 
I was tempted to call it the Gillingham Trials, but you say the Railway Coach Trials. Now, this is, again, in the county of Dorset. And if I got it right, there was a train that was sprayed in a tunnel near Gillingham with some sort of preparation that uh, mimicked an anthrax attack. And I understand also that ordinary passengers were traveling on this train at the time. So could you give us the details of that? Was this a one-off or was it done a number of times? What was going on there? It's a very curious series of trials. They wanted to find out whether... A man standing inside a tunnel could infect a train as it passed through the tunnel and cause disease amongst its passengers. So what they did is they went on to the Salisbury to Exeter line. This would have been about 1954. And a chap stood about 100 yards down into the tunnel. The tunnel was called Buckhorn Western. And funnily enough, right on top of it was the National Stud for Racehorses. So they were chancing it a bit during a trial there. (laughs) And a regular train. This is the interesting bit. Up until then, whenever they did a train trial, they were using chartered trains. So members of the public weren't involved. But on these two trials, they did a trial on the down run and a trial on the return run. They used a regular train and they put sampling devices in a rear carriage. So passengers going on their business down to Exeter, as they passed into the Buckhorn Western Station, there was a, a Porton scientist with a like a backpack with a air compressor on it and a spray, and he sprayed the anthrax simulant Bacillus pumilus. It's a spore, just like anthrax. It's meant to be harmless. And they would have got, I mean, the trials results show that, yes, it was very successful and that they would have breathed in a, a lot of bacteria. A later experiment that was done proved that you always retain at least 20% of any spore that you breathe in. So if this stuff was capable of causing disease, which it probably was in in certain vulnerable people, then, you know, they would have retained quite a lot of this material. So this would be described as another opportunistic pathogen, you think? Well, it is nowadays. Uh I mean, BG, which is its sister organism, is described as it should now be considered a human pathogen, i.e. capable of causing disease. Now, it doesn't say disease in vulnerable people. It is, it's saying healthy people. And this was a finding by the National Academy of Sciences Institute of Medicine in America. And they were asked to look into BG because it was commonly used across the Western world as a simulant for anthrax. And, you know, they found out, well, no, it's not as safe as people would like to say. Funnily enough, it's still on the list for Port and Dan to still use. It's still one of their favorites. Yeah, right. Yeah, right. so the Railway Coach Trials, I, I just must say, it was a fascinating trial because it's the only trials document I've ever seen that was top secret. And I've got quite a few of them. Normally, there's a great long distribution list at the end, you know, so they've got to go to the tripartite partners. They've got a certain amount of copies go to Canada, Australia, later on America, and then an enormous distribution list across the Ministry of Defence. This document only has one person it goes to, a mysterious Colonel Dixon, which does sound very strange. But you've got to remember that the Korean War was going on while these trials were being done. Certainly was going on when they were put forward, the idea to do them. And one of the effective ways of stopping a war is to reduce the opponent's logistics and supply routes. Now, you can either do that by blowing up tunnels, which the Americans had a a great fondness for doing, or you could incapacitate a troop train. And I mean, obviously, a trial like this would be very uh, handy to learn how to do you know, a certain thing or to test a piece of equipment. Now, this Colonel Dixon, his name does pop up one more time, but not in a port and down document. He pops up in Spycatcher and he pops up as an MI6 liaison with Peter Wright. And he does seem to pop up every time Peter Wright was involved in anything clandestine to do with assassination. I think he witnessed the cigarette packet nerve agent Fleshette 
experiment that was done. That's mentioned in Spycatcher. And he was also mentioned in the aborted attempt to assassinate NASA. So this Peter Dixon does crop up. And now if this Peter Dixon is Colonel Dixon, and I think it possibly is, that does open up the idea that this set of trials was a specific offensive orientated set. Again, with the things that I've looked at, the suggestion is given that this was really all about German spies might attack the subways uh, yes. in, in London or in Paris. Yeah, I mean, they, they, everyone's always been worried about it because it's sort of like a closed air system. Mm. Um important down in the end i mean they wanted to investigate the tube system in 1956 then again in 1958 and they were told they couldn't because um, it might cause a strike if anyone found out they got so sort of jumpy about the subject that by 1963 they were allowed to do this so they went on a train at collier's wood and a poor unsuspecting london transport apprentice was given a ladies compact and it was full of bg and a little bit of face powder just to give credence. And he had to put it out the window as the train was between Collier's Wood and Tooting Beck, which he did. And the resulting samples proved that it would have contaminated 10 miles. So that just one lady's compact. So if you've been standing on the Tooting Beck railway platform, when that cloud first came through, calculations are you would have inhaled three and a half million spores per minute. So there had to be a certain amount of danger in that. Did they actually do the necessary tests to be sure that this wasn't actually going to harm anybody? Well, Dr. Brian Baumer, he studied the subject quite a lot. And he, he has a theory that BG was always regarded as safe because it's always been regarded as safe. No one really tested out the BG, Bacillus globigii. It's just always been used by Portendown, so they've always assumed that it's safe. Now, before they did the Lyme Bay trials in which BG was used extensively, they did test a sample of it. But then they went and mixed it with water that was taken from their main supply, which was known to be contaminated with bacteria. I've never understood the sense of this. It's just that two sets of scientists never added it up. I've seen a trials report saying our mains water is contaminated. And I've seen a trials report saying the bacterial suspension was topped up with mains water. <laughs> this seems incredibly lax. It's, it is, you see. And no one would ever know what bacteria were sprayed because they were only looking for two specific types of bacteria when they did the sampling. Mm. So you could have had anthrax in there. They wouldn't have known. They were only looking for E. coli and BG. Yeah, so they were, it gives the impression that they were very much sort of ticking boxes about this. Oh, well, you know, that's okay. So well, It was very much a hierarchical thing as well, because it was overlooked by a chap called Dr. Henderson. Now, Dr. Henderson, for all intents and purposes, was the man in charge at Greenard Island with the anthrax. And he had rather lax safety standards. I say this because there's a man that has gone on record saying that he helped Dr. Henderson load the very small anthrax munitions that they were using on Grunard. And both of them were doing it with no protective clothing whatsoever. No gloves, no mask, no nothing. They were just pouring anthrax slurry into a very small pipe bomb, <laughs> so, which it must have gone all over the place. That's very odd because there are other trials where the scientists seem to have every possible protection they can. Yes, uh, you're referring, I expect, to the zinc-cabium sulfide trials. Yes, I am. That's right. I mean, you've got two rather hazardous substances there. And I think that with that, they were very careful. They knew that cadmium specifically was terrible. Mm. Uh, it was a very hazardous substance to use. And in that case, yes, you're quite right. They wore uh, neoprene elbow length gloves, surgeon's caps, white overalls and home office respirators. And yet with anthrax, they didn't behave in that way. <laughs> didn't behave in that way whatsoever. Dr. Henderson, he allowed a culture to go through that was rather macho. 
Now, this was meant to have been stamped out in 1969 because they were still pipetting, using a mouth pipette, bubonic plague, <laughs> in 1969. And, and the new director that came in was absolutely appalled at this. But in 1997, after the furore that was caused by the Lyme Bay trials becoming public knowledge, Portendown had to come down to Dorset and conduct three sort of like open air public events. And they got quite a surprise when they came down here. But it's the first time that they came outside the wire. So it's the first time ordinary people could actually talk to a Portendown scientist. And one young lady that I was talking to was almost boasting. She was saying, oh, no, the stuff we sprayed on you was totally harmless. I mean, I even pipette bubonic plague and she was saying in 1997 she's still doing <laughs> this practice was meant to be knocked out in 1969 and she was openly boasting it like it's a good thing oh, I see. Yeah. you know i made a point of stepping away from her <laughs> <laughs> indeed and said well that's surely not something to be proud of mm. you know and then she shut up after that and i realized i put my foot in it because she wasn't going to say any more but yeah safety standards they were just lax they'd conduct safety experiments as good as they thought they should go to, to a level that they thought was adequate. Now, you've mentioned, well, we've both mentioned the Lyme Bay trials a few times, and uh, this is the one that I particularly want to ask you about, because I said, uh, as I was a child, it was quite possible that I was sprayed with, I think it was two bacteria from out at sea. One was E. coli, and the other one that you've mentioned was uh, Bacillus glavigii, if I said that correctly. Globigii. Globigii. Yes. Yeah. So I guess we were both possibly subjected to this, and this was the ice whale ship that was out at sea spraying these substances in order to test what was going on there. Can you uh, give us an idea of what those trials were doing yeah absolutely by 1963 there was a general concern the chiefs of staff in particular were quite alarmed at the vulnerability of the uk to what they is called a large area coverage concept biological warfare attack if i just explain what one of those is Hmm. a large area coverage concept or lac attack would involve either a ship an airplane guided missile submarine it would sail along about 10 miles 20 miles off the coast of the uk relying on the wind to carry whatever it sprayed on shore. So it would spray probably on a 200-mile track, a bacterial suspension. This will get carried on shore by the wind and go hundreds of miles inland. It seems unbelievable, but it's proved it it really does work. One ship could contaminate an area of up to, say, 40,000 square miles. So they were very concerned, because we're an island, that we could be taken out quite easily. So they wanted to develop a detection device. Now, in order to develop the detection device, they had to find out, oh, happy day, how do we conduct a large area coverage concept biological warfare attack? So you can see that although it was started with so-called defensive reasons, trials results would actually give them offensive research as well. Mm. So what they did is that they came down here. uh, It was a massive effort. They were given a huge budget. And in 1963, they managed to lease the Admiralty Underwater Weapons Establishment experimental trials vessel called the Ice Whale. Now, they decided that they'd use an area of South Dorset and the surrounding counties as the target area because Lime Bay is a semicircular bay, so they could use many different wind directions. It was only 50 miles from Portland down, and there was a dockyard at Portland, so it seemed to be the ideal place. So they conducted... In the first trial season, and the season always goes from about October to April, because you have early nights, 
they could only spray at the time bacteria during nighttime because the sun will kill a vegetative bacteria because of the ultraviolet rays. And what they do is that the ice well will be loaded up with about 120 gallons of bacterial suspension. And they were actually in aluminium beer casks. The two types of bacteria that they were going to spray, they were both live. One was E. coli, port and down reference number of MRE162. It was isolated in 1949 from a laboratory bowl in Porton Down. Oh, very nice. <laughs> um, and the second bacteria was obtained from Fort Detrick in America, and it was called Bacillus globigii, BG. And as, as we now know, that is regarded as capable of causing disease nowadays. Once they, they'd maintained where they were going to be and they knew the wind direction, they'd start spraying. They'd sail on the straight line track across either Lime Bay or the adjoining Weymouth Bay. The mobile sampling teams would be roaming around at certain points, trying to get in the way of the cloud across anywhere up to 50 miles away from the source. So they'd be all across the Dorset countryside or Hampshire, sometimes Somerset, even Devon on, on some occasions. They'd radio back and say, look, we think that the cloud is probably appearing about now. Before they sprayed it, what they did to alert the sampling crews is every now and then they'd release what they call a zero lift balloon, which would have given rise to a lot of UFO reports at the time. And the zero lift balloon is sort of like about a six foot diameter balloon. Underneath it, it would have had a two foot balsa wood tinfoil reflector under it, radar reflector. And under that, it would have had a bicycle lamp, uh, which is remarkable. And it was balanced. Uh, they balanced it by putting pieces of plasticine onto the reflector so that it, it was neutral buoyancy. So they'd let it go, say, about 20 foot off the deck of the ship. And it would try and maintain 20 foot as it sailed across the, the countryside. As it came to a hill, the thermals would lift it up and over. So it would look like it's under intelligent control. Mm. Uh, and then it would carry on. And they'd release many of these balloons. They'd release them right at the start so that you could see the leading edge of the cloud. Halfway through, they'd do the same again. And then at the end, they'd release some more. So you'd have these waves coming in, these silent bobbing lights coming in from Lime Bay right at the height of a UFO scare because we just had the the 1962 scare there was another one that a biggie came out about 65 then a massive one in 67 and they all coincide i'm not saying that that's what everyone saw i'm just saying that it would have added to so all those people who do criticize and make fun of those who you know say well i've seen a ufo perhaps it's something to do with the defense yeah. establishment well actually yeah, 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 yeah it could yeah, well have yeah, been something it was a balloon now, you've got to remember that although MRE are doing this, these trials have been done in tremendous secrecy. Other departments at the Ministry of Defence have got no idea what's going on. They're not told. No one's told. It's only Porton Down that know that these trials are done, and it's only a certain amount of people within Porton Down that know that these trials are being done. Then what would happen is that the mobile teams that are out there, there were only four Land Rovers that were used as mobile samplers. They'd come back at night. They'd drive down the lonely Moonfleet Road, this gave rise to local ghost stories that there was a coven operating down there because monks were seen driving modern cars late at night. Well, what it was is it was Porton workers with their duffel coat hoods up <laughs> as they were driving back. They came back to their laboratory, which was uh, called the Night Ferry. They'd incubate these samples overnight, and then the next day they do a physical count of the various bacteria. And they try and work out whether enough bacteria, a concentration of bacteria, were alive at the end that would, if it had been a biological agent, have caused disease. And they did these trials over and over and over again. 
and they expanded. Although the, the emissions were based in Lime Bay and Weymouth Bay still, they were going as far as Torquay in the west up on Dartmoor. They were taking samples right the way around the Lime Bay coast, so Exmouth and Seton, Lime Regis, Bridport. And then right the way up uh, Hampshire, Andover, right the way up to Port and Down. So what they found out in the end is, and this comes across in the film that I managed to get off them, the unclassified version says while these trials were done for specific research purposes, they do reveal in a striking way the feasibility of small-scale biological warfare. And they say in there that they managed to achieve an appreciable dose of viable bacteria i.e. enough to cause illness if it was a real agent and it was still alive, over 1,000 square miles and all they had to spray was 120 gallons of suspension. That was just a very small-scale trial. They were then aiming to build up and they they produced a a mysterious airplane Mm -hmm. to try and do a whole of the country. And these Lime Bay trials, didn't they continue for a very long time? Was it even into the 1970s? Yeah, uh, so they did the 1963 trials, uh, 64, sorry, and then they did the 64 to 65. They came back again in 1966, probably the worst trial, the one that we can pin that had no defensive aspects whatsoever, was a series of five trials that they did in 1967 to find out if they could protect the bacteria against the effects of sunlight, that way they could spray in daylight that sort of trial has only got an offensive purpose to it they invented a little substance called s3 covered their e coli with it and um, they proved that yes we can spray during the daytime they did another series of trials which professor spratt wasn't told about for his internal review purely to show off their detection techniques to the armed forces they were trying to up their budget so they came down here and conducted a number of tests exactly the same trials techniques showing off the detection system which wasn't that good um it was very very slow it it didn't detect bacteria it told you a day or so later that something had happened so you mentioned professor spratt now this is the guy from imperial college and he was commissioned by the government was he not to inquire into the safety of the lime bay trials and this is would this have been in the 1990s or in the 2000s yeah what happened is that there was such a public outcry when the trials became known And all the local governments, I mean, hats off to them. They did very well and and did say, look, this isn't good enough. We want to know more answers as to what else you've been up to. Now, this political pressure was added to by a team of uh, quite courageous people from East Lulworth who had experienced a lot of childhood birth difficulties or birth defects, a lot of miscarriages. It's a very small area, but it was right in the trials area. And they often wondered whether any of this was caused by the biological warfare trials. They appeared a lot on television, gave a tremendous push to the government. Let's have a public inquiry. Now, governments don't like public inquiries. And so what they decided to do was have an independent review by Professor Brian Spratt. And he came down and he's very good. He talked to anyone that wanted to talk to him. My personal experience of him was very good. He definitely wasn't on the side of establishment. But at the same time, he was very measured, a little too measured, I think. His findings on the BG in particular, he says, well, he can't find anything, you know, that would say that it would cause disease in inhalation. Mm. That's been disproved by the National Academy of Sciences, who've come out and said that, well, no, actually, this can cause disease. So that probably needs to be looked at again. 
But apart from that, he did pick up on quite a few points where Porton had done very lax events of any safety regime. For instance, there was four sets of trials where they sprayed bacterial substances, overpopulated areas, and it was contaminated with an unknown bacteria. Now, you just don't do this. They do pre-trial checks on all their substances. So they checked one batch of bacteria uh, that they were going to spray. They looked at it and said, oh, look, it's contaminated. And then they said, ah, never mind, and carried on and sprayed it. So the point of doing a safety check, I don't know. Mm. Well, in the ITV piece, he said, this is uh, Professor Brian Spratt, he said that the overwhelming majority of people are unlikely to have been affected by these trials. And yet in his report, I'm not sure exactly what trial he's referring to here, but he says that there was a, let me quote from it, it is however surprising that suspensions with this level of contamination with uncharacterized bacteria were sprayed across populated areas as there was a possible risk that the contaminating bacteria had a significant ability to cause disease in humans, even though they apparently caused no toxicity in the safety tests in mice. So those two statements there don't seem quite to match each other. What do you think he really feels about this? I agree with you. I think sometimes that different parts of the report, as you you know, are drafted at different times. And I think that something from a previous one, i.e. wouldn't have caused problems, was left in. I think you're looking at two drafts and they've been put into the final thing. And they do conflict. I understand what he's talking about to a certain point. What is important is to recognize that when somebody like Professor Spratt uses the word significant, I mean, that's a public inquiry word, that really means that something could have happened. I think he's aiming at Porton down there and he's giving them a slap on the wrist. Mm. Now, this might have occurred time and time again. It's unfortunate that all subsequent trials documents do not include the same safety certificate, if you want to call it that, as the original one that told us this. This was taken from MRE trial, field trial report number three, and it's table 5.1. Well, in all subsequent MRE field trial reports, table 5.1 is absent. Now, whether they've taken it out and they don't want people to see, or whether they just didn't bother testing the bacteria for unknown bacterial presence, we don't know. Mm. Well, what I want to ask you on a personal level, this Lyme Bay trial spraying was going on, you say, even into the 1970s. Yeah. And as I said to you in the email, I was susceptible to chest infections when I was around six, seven, eight years old, which was around that kind of time in the early 70s there. And uh, I notice in his report, this is Professor Spratt again, he says, if infections did occur in any highly susceptible individuals, they would have probably been infections of the chest or blood which would have occurred within days of the release of the bacteria. So when I saw that, I thought, well, yeah, that's what I had. So do you think it's unreasonable for me to to think that I might have been affected by this? No, I don't think it's unreasonable at all. A biological warfare simulant is normally between one and five microns in size. That's extremely small. And it's designed to be of that size because it evades the body's defenses. And it goes hurtling down into your lungs. And that size enables it to penetrate to the deepest part of the lung, the alveoli. There's still not a lot known about what occurs down there when a piece of material gets into there. It is known that BG or any aerosol of that size can cause certain people to have allergic reactions. Indeed, I've managed to get hold of a portent down safety sheet, and they still warn that inhalation of BG can cause anaphylactic shock in certain people. So, yes, some people would have been made ill. I've got absolutely no doubt that that some people would. I mean, going on on Professor Spratt's level, I think he's talking mainly of of people like with cystic fibrosis or emphysema, something like that. 
But you see, when people look into safety regimes, they tend to look at a 20-year-old, a healthy 20-year-old, and will it affect them? They don't look at will it affect a newborn baby? Because believe it or not, if you have all your windows shut when they do these tests, the normal ventilation rate of a house in those days, the level inside the house will be equal to the level of bacteria present in the air outside the house within half an hour. That's with the windows shut. Moreover, any bacteria that have come into the house will be very, very small indeed and capable of getting right inside you. It would also, especially in the case of BG, have managed to get on any food stuff that was left out. And you've got to bear in mind that even in the 60s, early 60s, a lot of people didn't have fridges. They had meat safes. Any food that was left out would have got covered in this stuff. You know, and now I'm pretty sure that it would be an outcry nowadays if it became known that, oh, by the way, we just came over and sprayed your entire house and its contents with E. coli. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. No, no matter of people saying, oh, it's perfectly safe. <laughs> well, is it? Because this isn't any ordinary E. coli. This is an E. coli that was developed by Porton Down. And it took them a long time before that they could work out how to make this stuff in the size that they wanted and the quantities that they wanted. <laughs> 